0: Hey, uh, my name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here at tree Life Church. If this is your first time or second time or, uh, you know, whatever, uh, welcome. I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, and uh, we're going through a series called uh, The Art of Finding Joy. We're actually walking slowly through the book of uh, Philippians, which is a, a New Testament book. And uh, today's uh, message is... It's really, it's an in-house message. It's really geared towards the the, the church family. And And so if you're kind of investigating Christianity still, or if you're a guest today, I'm really glad that you're here. It was actually a good good time for you to be here as well. Because you actually get a chance to hear kind of how the family talks. And so we're uh, actually really talking uh, about how the church, uh, how we need to be focused on our mission in order for us to reach the next generation. And so, uh, it's, it's, it's in-house in that um, it'll make sense for those of you guys who have been Christian for a long time, for those of you guys who are newer or are still investigating the faith, uh, you, get, you get a glimpse as to how we talk to each other and how we talk about, um, you know, I, I hate to use the word propagating the faith because that just sounds so, uh, uh, it doesn't sound right. But how do we make sure that what God has given us will last until the next few generations? So today I want to talk about what it takes for us as a church to be a champion team. What does it mean to be a, a champion team? And let me explain, uh, I spent the last couple of weeks watching tons of sports documentaries. I love sports documentaries. I've watched uh, Mike Tyson in boxing, I've watched MMA, I've watched um, uh, NBA, I've watched track and field, I've even watched Pumping Iron, which is about Arnold Schwarzenegger. And so I've exhausted my Netflix. I've watched every sports uh, documentary in Netflix. And so. The thrill of watching these things is uh, seeing those who should win actually lose, and those who should lose actually win. And last year was probably one of the greatest defeats in women's world relay racing, uh, the world's 4x200 uh, meter. And so uh, let me get, make sure I get their names right, because it was, it was in the Bahamas last year. And the USA women's team, they were slated to win. They won in 2014. They were the favorite in 2015. And so, um, uh, Shalana Solomon, Kimberlyn Duncan, and Geneva Tormo were the first uh, three legs in the race. And they, if you watch the video, you can go to YouTube and find it. They were, like, just way far ahead. Way far ahead. So, disaster struck in the final exchange between Tormo and Allison Felix, who, if you know, Allison Felix is an Olympic champion. What happened was, um, Allison Felix, she couldn't quite get a, the grip, and so they were doing, I forget what the actual pass is, but I know nothing about track and field, but like, I researched enough to know that uh, her, her fingers were down, her, her fingers were out, and her palms were, was inside, and her thumb was pointing down, and what happened was she missed the grip. She didn't quite grip it correctly, and so she slowed down coming out of her block while uh, Torma was still coming in at full speed. And so, if you know anything about relay racing, which I remember doing one time, I remember that one time I sweated uh, when I was <laughs> in the grade five. Uh, but if you know anything about like, relay racing, that if one person is going slower than the other, what's going to happen? They collided, and that's exactly what happened, was Felix and Tormo collided, both falling to the floor, dashing their hopes of being the champion team. So many hopeful and talented teams do not accomplish their purpose because they botch the handoff. off. They don't grab a hold of the, 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 the goal. and they, they loosen the grip for whatever reason. They don't make the transfer. You can be skilled, you can be talented, but if you don't have a solid grip, you can't make the transfer. And for something like faith in Christianity, Belief in Jesus, the gospel. It doesn't matter how well you're doing individually. If you don't make the transfer, if we don't make the transfer, we're not accomplishing our goal. This is true for leaders. This is true for parents. This is true for anyone who has influence. If you don't make the transfer, we we fall short of our goal. And the Apostle Paul, he compares our journey of faith to disciplined athletes, Consistently throughout his letters, but in Philippians, at least three or four times, he's, he's, he's comparing our race uh, as a Christian to a disciplined athlete. And so in this passage today, we actually get a glimpse as to how Paul is actually handing the baton off to those that he had raised as leaders and as Christians in the church that he started, the first church in Europe. So Paul's actually saying to, Philipp, to the Philippians that he's actually saying to us that you're next. You're next. You're in the next leg of the race. Be serious. Don't drop the baton. Don't fumble it. Be a champion team. A champion, in a champion team, everyone must run with all seriousness and everyone must secure the handoff. Everybody on the team. You have to be serious. You have to secure the handoff. And so we're going to look at those two things from this passage. Is the first thing is a champion team runs with all seriousness. I'm probably going to fit around with this all, all morning. I don't know what to do with it because I'm going to keep coming back to it. So if I'm pointing this at you, it's not because like you know I'm like oh wait, you you needed this. It's I'm just uncomfortable with it. So I'm going to put it down one for a second. Uh, verse twelve. Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as, I, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I've been on a few teams where uh, my team members weren't serious, right? Now, secretly, I'm very serious about competition. So if, if, we're, always on a, if we're ever on a team together, secretly, I always want to win. Uh, there's, there's no question about that. And I've been in a couple of teams where people didn't take the rules seriously, right? So you're playing volleyball and they're all slapping it like this. And I'm just like, oh, you know, so sorry if you were on my Asperger's team last summer. Um, I probably said a couple of things about you in my head that <laughs> I should have said. They're not, they're not serious about competition. Worse, they're not serious about winning. And inside, I always want to win. I'm sorry. Like, that's just, I. I just always want to win. Um, So I typically hate those experiences when we're on a team that's competitive and nobody's playing seriously. I typically hate that. But imagine, imagine if the first century church, imagine if these churches weren't serious About their faith. Imagine if the baton came to them and they're just all kind of like, uh, you know, sitting, laying around. What time is it? The the handoff doesn't happen. They don't take the faith seriously. Imagine if what what if people didn't take doctrine and theology serious? What if people didn't take their evangelism serious? What if people didn't take leadership serious? Where would you and I be? You see, this is a very family driven conversation. Because Jesus means a lot to you. Imagine if somebody before you didn't take that conversation seriously, where would you be? Paul's saying here that, he said, you guys, he's saying to Philippians, you guys understand the game, because when I was there with you, I taught it to you. He's saying, so now that I'm gone, be serious about the game. He actually says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's not saying, earn your salvation, okay? He's not saying perform so that God will approve of you. He's not saying that. That's dry religion. Paul doesn't teach that. Actually, our faith is the opposite. Paul is pointing out that when your faith is genuine, when you're genuinely belonging to God, when you genuinely have faith, it's as you work it out, you exercise it, all right? You display your faith with all seriousness, with fear and trembling. Those who have true faith are the ones that are most serious about it. Here's the bottom line question today. How serious have we been lately? How serious have we been lately? There comes a point in our spiritual growth when our coaches and our leaders and our mentors and our disciple makers, when, when they can't keep breathing down your neck to get 100% effort out of you. Christianity is not like uh, people trying out for a team, Right? It's not like, oh, I'm working really hard just so I can get on the team. That's not Christianity. The Christianity was like, boy, you, 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 you really suck at this game. <laughs> but because of Jesus, you got on the team. Like, you got on the team because you knew, you know, LeBron James, or pick your favorite uh, athlete, uh, Michael Jordan, or, uh, you know, uh, pick your favorite athlete. Sorry. Oh, can't in can't be, don't talk about that heartbreak. Uh, <laughs> but that's how you got on the team. You didn't, you didn't try out for it, you didn't work out for it. You, you were on the team because you knew the guy who is the star on the team. And so what happens is that we give, we give 100% because we were added to the team, not because we had to work hard to be on the team, right? We give 100%, we obey God not to be accepted, but because we were accepted, we obey God. It's different. It's different in Christianity, All right. So we love the game, we love the coach, we love our team. And that's why we're serious. That's why we work it out in fear and trembling. We're committed to the body. We're committed to the mission. We're serious about it. I was watching a documentary on Alan Iverson. anybody know Alan Iverson? I'm just make sure that okay. okay, all right, I think this will still connect to you guys. AI um, was arguably, uh, if you followed his career, arguably he could have been the greatest small guard in the NBA. I mean, arguably had the best handles, right? So uh, if you ever watch AI crossovers, like you understand. And so what happened was in his career, though, um, he, he fell short of winning an NBA championship. And so he actually made a lot of lifestyle decisions that were, caused heartache for himself, his coaches, his team members. And so uh, after uh, about a decade in the NBA, in, multiple, in the multiple trades, he even came to the Pistons, which is bad news for him. He came to the Pistons, uh, where else did he go? He went, to, uh, he went to Denver first and went to a couple other teams, eventually retired with the Sixers. Um, but at the end, after he retired and he was reflecting on his uh, career, he knew that it wasn't his talent that kept him from winning an NBA championship. He actually reflects and he says, it was the fact that early on in his career, he never took his lifestyle serious while he was an NBA player. And that was the reason why he never lived up to his potential. If you phrase it in the words that Paul used, Allen Iverson, AI, was arguably the most talented guard in his generation, but because he did not play the game with fear and trembling. He didn't live up to his potential. And it's not that faith isn't fun. Faith is very fun and dynamic, actually. But it's seriousness. Seriousness grounds a person's talent to their character. Uh, Seriousness actually ties together someone's passion to discipline. So um, me, I'm, I'm not naturally a disciplined person, all right? I'm, I'm not. If I ever give off the aura that I, I'm organized and strategic and disciplined, it's because I fake it really, really well. Um, <laughs> I need passion. I need motivation to stay serious and focused. Uh, so the person who knows this best about me is obviously Linda. She will tell you uh, stories about me that uh, you'd be like, ah, I don't know if you should be leading us, right? Um, but uh, before becoming a pastor and entering into seminary, I shared last week and a couple other weeks uh, that yeah, i struggled a lot with my faith uh, in my early 20s and mid-20s. And so when I kind of came out of that season, I told myself that I'm, if I'm going to be serious about the Bible, I'm not only going to learn it, but I'm going to start memorizing it. And so because I want to I make sure that I actually internalize the message of the Bible. So I started memorizing a lot of verses. And the first one that I picked um, is it's I call it my anchor verse. It's out of First Corinthians chapter nine, verse twenty four through twenty seven, and uh, I think Paul was a sports fan because he wrote a lot about athletics. And Paul writes this. He says, "Do you not know? Do you know? Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives a prize? So run, run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self control in all things." They do it for a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And I come back to that verse time and time again, season after season, because I know that I waver. I don't have enough discipline in my body, I I tell myself, anchor yourself in the things that you know to be true. Because there are too many things that are coming at you to steal your attention. Every season, every desert period since then, it's been 13 years since I've memorized that verse. Every time, I anchor myself back to that verse. Something that you need to understand about the feedback loop is this, that discipline feeds passion, passion feeds discipline. But both come from God. If you're in a season where you feel spiritually unmotivated, spiritually dry, maybe even spiritually dead, here's the hope that we cling to in these seasons. It's verse 13. Paul says, for it is God who works in you. Both to will. That means both to give you passion, to make you willing to do things. And both to work discipline." For his good, God does it in you. How do you become serious about faith again? How do you regain excitement for God and his purposes? Not by mustering it up. Not by necessarily just trying harder. Only by asking God, give it to me. I'm no longer passionate about the things of you. You don't muster it up. You ask for it. God gives it to you to will and to work. Your prayer shouldn't be, God, I will try harder next time. That's, that's not a gospel prayer. It needs to be, from Psalms 51, King David says this, Restore unto me the joy of your salvation and renew a right spirit within me. God gives discipline and God gives passion for spiritual things. And what if you say I'm in a season where I'm not spiritually motivated? What what if you're in a season when you don't desire God? Uh, Two things that I want to offer up. One is a a very kind of basic uh, uh, recommendation. I want to commend to you a book called When I Don't Desire God by John Piper. Uh, It's a great book. It's one that I've read um, throughout the last couple of years that has helped me. There's so much in that book that processes spiritual apathy. All right? if you're apathetically spiritually, uh, it processes that with you. But here's a quote that John Piper writes. He says, if you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because you've drunk deeply and are satisfied. It's because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world that your soul is stuffed with small things, and there is no room for the great. And Piper's not trying to make anyone feel guilty. He's not writing this to... you're, 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 you're eating all this junk food, you're not eating God's best, right? He's not trying to make anybody feel guilty. He's simply pointing out the fact that most of us, most of us, our hunger for God has been diminished because we have no more room for it. You're just so full on other things. I love junk food. Have you seen my body? Is this an athlete's body? No, I love junk food. Most of us spiritually love junk. There's no room for it. It's not that we're not hungry. It's we're out of shape. Your spiritual metabolism, man. Right? And that's why fasting, that's why fasting is important. People primarily fast not because they're hungry for God, but they fast to create hunger for God. You don't fast because, oh, you're so spiritual and you're hungry for that. No, you do it because you know that hunger pain is starting to disappear and you need it back. Second thing I want to share, I would say it's a bit more encouraging than than this particular uh, quote from John Piper, but it's also something that I learned from him. And I'm I'm sorry, John Piper is a a theologian and a pastor. Um, I didn't mention that earlier. Um, And uh, uh, he he writes in his other book, this is When I Don't Desire a he writes in his other book desire of God. He says that although sometimes you don't have the feelings for God in the way that you think you should, don't guilt yourself. Don't guilt yourself. The fact that you know and you want to have a connection with God is evidence already that God is at work in you. Isn't that cool? Remember God gives you the will and the work. The fact that you don't feel it, don't feel guilty about that. But the fact that you know that you should know that you want it is evidence that God's working in you. From God's perspective, the desire to desire God is actually just desiring God. Does that help anybody today? Okay, all right. When you stand before something vast and majestic like the Grand Canyon, and you know you're supposed to feel some feeling of grandeur, but you can't, right? The wrong response is to condemn yourself. Oh, look at all these other people. They're having spiritual experiences at the Grand Canyon. Like, I would just want to go and grab a burger, right? The wrong response is to guilt yourself if you don't have those feelings, right? The better response is to recognize that you know you should feel something, but you don't right now. But given the right conditions, one day you could. And just because you don't feel it today doesn't make the Grand Canyon any less grander. Come back tomorrow to see what happens. Um, at the risk of being overly pragmatic, I want to give you four things that help me stay serious about the Christian faith and the mission. Alright? Number one, is says: be serious about personal worship and corporate worship. Be, be serious about that. Alright? Nobody's keeping attendance. Like Curtis doesn't stand at the door and say, Yep, check, somebody came to right. nobody's keeping it. but be serious. Because you're serious about the, the, the atmosphere, the environment in which God loves to bless. Right? So if you're not there, whether it's in your personal time or whether it's in a corporate time, you're not serious about the environments in which God loves to bless. Be serious about these things. All right? Do you always feel like, you know, again, this is an in-house conversation, but church, do you always feel like the songs we're singing are moving? You don't have to always feel that. But there's a, like, you know, I mean, okay, I don't always, I'm not always interested in what Lynn and the kids have to say to me. I know, I, that, that's why I look towards this way, not towards that way, person. <laughs> and she knows this, because she points it out consistently. But because I'm serious about them, I will turn my gaze to them when they have something to tell me. I want to be in the the environment where if it's going to happen, it'll happen here. To not put yourself in those environments is to not be serious, right? Secondly is uh, internalize, internalize scripture. Meditate. Memorize it. It may not help you now. Save it for a rainy day. Save it for a rainy day. You know how many times I've had to tell myself, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Less after preaching to others, I myself would be disqualified. You know the amount of temptations that people in ministry have. You know how many friends that I have in ministry that have disqualified themselves because they didn't watch out for the life and their character. Internalize scripture, not because you need it today. You may be strong today. There's going to come a day when you need it. Number three is tell at least a little bit of the gospel every day to somebody. Right now, we're teaching Abe, you're a special little God. <laughs> okay. We haven't given him the why yet. It's not because of you, Abe. <laughs> All right. It's because of Jesus. But we're telling him a little bit of the gospel every day. So those of you guys who don't feel like you have to get to evangelism, that's okay. You don't have to like, like puke the gospel out of people. Just let them know. You know what? There's somebody who really loves you. and bet you don't even know. Share a little bit of the gospel every day. Be in the place of sharing. And then fourthly, is remind yourself that there's a generation that's watching you. We think that we're doing life in this kind of like isolated. No, man. There's a whole entire generation watching you. There's a person in our family. They got a certain kind of haircut this week. I won't say much about that because I didn't get any but, uh, and then, you know, this person was being compared with other persons that had similar haircuts, and
1: I don't know if you
0: understand how young people are watching you. Yeah, you're like, I'm 25, 28, you know, I'm still young myself No, there's some young cats that walk around in the neighborhoods that you live in watching you. Right? Faith wasn't meant to be introspective. Um, that's a terrible way to be on a team, by the way. Uh, if you want to be on a team, if you want to run, really hard and fast, the worst thing to do is to look at your feet while you're running. You have to look up, because there are other people in front of you. What helps us stay serious in the race is, number one, to realize that somebody else ran with all their might to pass the baton on to me. So many people have given all of their time, energy, money, relationships just so you and I could be here. Think about this. There's too many people ahead of you that are, are, are depending on you to run with all your might. So one day they might be here also. It leads me to our second point, is that a champion team secures the handoff. They don't botch the handoff. They make sure that they have a grip on it. Paul says in verse 14 and 15, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and a twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Paul's saying that when you're focused on your goal, there isn't time to complain. Listen, we don't live in a fair world, all right? It's not fair. Not fair. Whatever happens to you, I guarantee you, it's not fair. There's no use in complaining about that. In the game of life, people will always commit flagrant fouls against you. It hurts. You guys know what a flagrant foul is, by the way? I'm, I'm in the NBA side now. <laughs> I should have rushed up a <laughs> Yeah. Um, people will be malicious. People will cheat. Paul says, but not us. Not this team. Not us. We're going to do it because we have integrity. The world's watching. We're going to be like lights shining in this world. We're going to do it with integrity. It's the scary thing about being a parent. Is kids learn passion from you. Not just, not just culture and tradition. Kids watch you and they learn your level of passion they also watch you and they learn what you're apathetic about. And when they see you apathetic about important things, to them, it saddens them. But if they see you apathetic about your faith or about the things of God, what are you teaching them? Paul says in verse 16, holding fast to the word of life, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ." I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul says, There it is. Secure the handoff. Hold fast to the word of life. Grip onto Jesus. Don't drop the baton. Make me proud. Secure the handoff. I ran my leg of the race. I did my best. I handed it off to you. Now it's your turn. Secure the handoff and run. Run Like you already know that the race is yours to win. Paul says, on the day of Christ Jesus, it's almost like, he's almost saying that we already know that we won this game. So why don't you run like you're losing? Don't be casual. On the day of Christ Jesus, that's when it all culminates. That's the reward ceremony. Run like you're gonna be on stage. Run like the champion team we are. I think about all the men and women, all the men and women in my life that it made it possible for me to know Jesus, to made it possible for me to, 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 uh, to, to be a leader in the church. I, I think about all the people that have run with all their might. Some of them I know, some of them I don't know. Let me give you some names that I know that they stretched out their hand and gave me the baton. These are just people in my life that I just know. Michael Chong. you'll never know him. First guy... It took me to share my faith. I was 17. Couldn't be any harder. I was at university, two homeless guys. He says, buy them a coffee, share with them the love of Christ. And I thought, they're homeless. God doesn't love them. That's what I thought. But Michael Chung says, no, you do the theology in your head. God loves everybody. Help them to understand that. Nyevay he's a pastor mentor of mine. You'll never meet him, little short immigrant guy. You'll never meet him. First pastor that trusted me with leadership, age of 23, asked me to be an assistant pastor in his church. I didn't know anything. Bob Roberts, some of you guys met this past summer. He's a big Texas guy, right? I mean, he doesn't fit Toronto at all. We're a bit nervous about bringing him up, to be honest with you. He looked at me five years ago. He says, Daniel, Daniel, if you remember Bob. Stop thinking like a minority. You were made for the world. I used to talk like that when I lived in Texas for three years, by the way. It's pretty bad. A.B. Simpson, good Canadian guy. Started the Christian Missionary Alliance. The denomination that I grew up in and I served and I became a leader in before we planned a training life church. The Apostle Paul, the Philippian Church, Jeff Christopherson. Kelly's not here. I wanted to celebrate her day. Very few of you guys know this, but Jeff Christopherson started the organization that sponsored us to be church planners here in the city. He's a father to us in the city. These are men who ran with all their might, women who ran with all their might, and they, come up here real quick, uh, Isaac. I want to I <laughs> illustrate something. Yeah, yeah, exactly, all right? These are men and women who ran in a way where it was like this, all right, so. I pretend, uh, yeah, I know. Pret- exactly. Pretend that I'm handing the baton off to you, Right? They didn't do this. No all wants it. They, they, didn't, they, didn't, they didn't say, okay, let me, I don't trust you. They did this. <laughs> you can hold on to that for a souvenir. Until we can do that, we have not fulfilled our responsibility in the church. Paul says, I ran the best that I could. Secure the handoff, it's your turn. There's a nationwide study commissioned by uh, the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada in 2013. It was called Hemorrhaging Faith. Some of you guys may have read this. It reveals that the handoff to this generation, those who are 18 to 35, the handoff to that generation has not been that great. Only one in three Canadian young adults who attended church weekly as a child still do today. Of the young adults who no longer attend church, half have also stopped identifying themselves with the Christian tradition in which they were raised. The four primary reasons, according to this study, that keep young people from engaging with the church is, number one, the hypocrisy that we see, the judgmental attitudes we have, (laughs) primarily against um, the LGBT community, uh, us being exclusive, those people who are in, those who are out, And then personal failures. Not the church's personal failures. Their own. We didn't teach grace properly to people, so they were so ashamed they stepped away from the church. And that was it. I'm American. We're we're doing slightly better than Canada. But if if you're the the Christian church in Canada, disajonement. The Gallup Poll did a uh, study, uh, the least religious countries in the world. There are 196 countries in the world. Canada is number 14 in the least religious countries in the world. 53% of Canadians have no religious affiliation. We're right up there with the UK, with uh, the former uh, communist countries, um, That's where we're at. We're the 14th most likely to reject God. We're the 14th most likely to reject Jesus. Are you okay with that? If you're 35 years uh, and above, uh, I'm in that category, you and I, we we have to take some level of responsibility for this. We have to take, you know, maybe not you personally, but probably you personally. But if this, is, if you grew up in the church and you, you know, especially if you're in leadership, this, you have, we have to take some level of responsibility for this botched handoff. We need to come before God with conviction in our mind and with hope in our hearts and with love for this country. And we need to say that I, I will secure, I'm going to do my best to secure the handoff. I will do my best. Paul says in verse 17 that I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. What's Paul saying? He says that I will do whatever I need to do. I'll die in order for you to understand how important this mission is for your life. I, my idols, my comfort, everything, my reputation, I, those things will die if it means that I, I am showing you how serious we are about this mission, Paul says that I will lay it on the line. I'll pour it out. I grew up in the ghetto, and uh, we used to have this phrase that I'll drink a 40 to your memory. Uh, it's from a rap song. I don't hear that. Okay. And you guys didn't grow up in the ghetto like me. So. so at my friend's funerals, because they were gangsters, what they would do was they would take a 40 ounce of malt liquor. Uh, you've probably seen this on TV, but it happens for real. And when one of their brothers died, they would go to the uh, gravesite and they would take a forty liquor and they would pour it out because they weren't going to drink that to disrespect. Paul saying, my life, I'm pouring it out for you. I, that's how much you guys mean to me. I will lay my life on the line. And he's doing that as an example. And we're truly a follower of Jesus. We can't, we can't afford to have a bench full of players that aren't serious. We just, we can't play the game that way. Like, I don't want to be on that team. Everybody's like messing around. Like, Paul gave too much. A.B. Simpson gave too much. I love the Alliance, by the way. If you grew up in the Alliance tradition, very rich. Jeff Christopherson gave too much. He gave us his daughter and his son-in-law. <laughs> been too many men and women that have gave too much for us to not be serious about our faith and the mission that God has us on. I'll be done with this. Four questions to ask ourselves about securing the handoff. How do we do it? One is ask yourself, who can I be thankful for pouring out their life so that I know God is Heavenly Father? There are people in your life But you just need to just recount and say, man, wow, I loved her because she just gave us so much and she never asked for anything. Or I loved him because every Sunday he showed up to make things possible for us. Who in your life is that person? Celebrate them. Number two is, do I have a vision for my life that flows into the next generation? Does your your vision for life just stop at you and yours? Or does it continue on? To the next generation? Do you, do you have a vision beyond just like your own, you know, immediate like accumulation of things and your own degrees and those things, which I want to encourage you? We'll have another sermon about how good those things are and how you should be diligent in that. But uh, today I want to do you have a vision beyond just those things or do those things lead to the things that God has planned for the greater picture? And that's number three is that am I investing my time, money, and possessions into actual people? And not just into programs or just organizations, but do, do, is there a very real effect in which like, people can feel me investing into their personal lives? And it doesn't have to be a, a large group of people. It may just be one person for the next 10 years of your life. But can you put a face to the investment that you're putting into? Okay. And the fourth piece is, uh, which individuals am I handing the spiritual baton to by the time I turn 40? Why did I choose 40? Why is 40 a significant number? It's not because of Archie. Not Archie, I'm not going to stop playing around with you, but it's something that Archie and I have to consider at our age, because I'm in that age bracket with Archie. That's okay, I'm, I'm accepting that. <laughs> uh, it, something that we have to ask ourselves, because 40 is a significant number, not because you're getting older, not because you're getting older. 40 is a significant uh, number because you've now lived an entire generation. There are other adults coming underneath you. You understand why 40 is a significant age now? Right. And so the question that I'm asking myself as a 36-year-old, right, which, to be honest with you, because I'm a 15-year-old, I'm more like a 45-year-old. Okay. Like my body and haircut will tell you that. Um, The question I ask myself is this. At age 36, who are the 10 to 12 people That at least 10 years, that are at least 10 years younger than me, that I'll spend the rest of my life investing in. I don't need to have a flock of people. I just need 10 to 12. I've already got four chosen because they're related to me. Those are chosen for me. But who are the other six to eight people that I want to give my life attention to? I want to give every ounce of knowledge that they're willing to hear. Give to, I want to give them every resource. I want to set them up to be way much more successful than me. Who are those people? I'm looking for those people right now. Not because I, I'm so full of myself, but because by the time I'm 40 and 50, I want to know that I've invested myself in the next generation. You may be sitting in the, in the chair right now. You're like 20-ish, and you're not thinking about this question. That's okay. That's okay. But by the time you hit thirty-five, you're a bit late in the game. At the age of thirty, Jesus had twelve, and in the twelve, he had three. He knew that by the time his time was with them was over, that he would have perfectly and with passion and with instruction handed off the baton to these twelve. And must—it must have been nerve-wracking for him to think about the destiny of the world is in the hands of this ragtag group of people. But there is something about his handoff to his disciples that he says, these guys, they will perpetuate the mission. When Jesus started at age 30, he had three years with his guys, and that was it. So you see this is a very in-house uh, conversation this morning, because I want to challenge us, church, that we can be a champion team. I think I've said this over and over again. We've got so many tens in our church, tens in other areas, like, you know, tens in all areas of your fields of expertise. But it's not talent and skill that accomplishes our goal, it's seriousness, and it's our ability to hand off to the next generation. So let's spend the next couple of minutes just praying and asking God to do that within us. We don't have what it takes, we might have a skill but I don't know if we have the wherewithal. Only God can work inside of us to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's ask for that.